Well, again, I want to welcome all of you, especially if you're our guests. And here's the thing. Uh, in case you are a guest, I want to just let you know kind of what we're doing here on Sunday mornings right now. We're, we're in the midst of a teaching series uh, <clears throat> in which we're exploring the idea of establishing certain um, spiritual habits that can uh, help shape our lives and deepen our relationship and our walk with God. And, and from the get-go, we've, de- we've defined spiritual habits as activities we choose to engage in that repeatedly bring us back to God and facilitate um, spiritual growth and spiritual health. In fact, uh, just this week, I was reading about this guy, Dr. Andrew Newberg. I don't know if you've ever heard about him. He's the director of research at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Medical College in Philadelphia. He's also the author of this book, How God Changes Your Brain, Breakthrough Findings from a Leading Neuroscientist. In the book, uh, Dr. Newberg reports how research is proving that spiritual practices have a profound impact on us as human beings, and they're a great general strengthener of the brain. He writes, if you engage in prayer, for example, you activate other centers of the brain. Isn't that fascinating? It makes me realize I need to pray more because my brain needs all the help it can get. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Also, according to uh, psychiatrist and neurologist Dr. Kurt Thompson in his book, entitled Anatomy of the Soul, he says that engaging in spiritual practices helps the brain work more effectively. Data indicates that repeating these practices exponentially increases the positive effects. So here's my, here's my personal Reiki summary of that. The God who created us knows exactly what is right and good and healthy and best for us. And engaging in spiritual practices, engaging in these spiritual habits uh, that help, focus us, uh, uh, help us focus on him you know, and deepen our relationship with him also carry some incredible ancillary benefits uh, for us uh, as human beings. So this morning, we're going to talk about two more spiritual habits that often get, you know, they get linked together, uh, solitude and silence. Now, here's the deal. I honestly know very little about these two practices, and so I considered, you know, just standing up here alone and keeping quiet for uh, several minutes, not saying a word, but then figured that's not really going to be very helpful to anybody. And so uh, I've asked Kim Whetstone, uh, our spiritual formation director, who has some personal knowledge of and, and experience with these particular disciplines, to kind of bail me out on this and to come help me uh, with these. But before Kim comes up, Um, I want you to take a look at this. Does anybody feel that? Do you know that feeling? That feeling that you're racing through life at about 100 miles an hour and you'd love to stop and take a breath, but there just doesn't seem to be the time or the space. The bills are mounting up. Maybe the marriage is tough. Maybe life is just hard right now. It doesn't matter if it's your boss or your family or your friends or your church. Everyone seems to be telling you that you're never giving enough. You're exhausted from trying to make people think that you have it all together because you don't. You're pressed from the noise on the outside telling you who you should be and who you need to be and you're pressed from the noise on the inside. Somehow in the midst of it is your soul somewhere. 
You may be wondering, who have I become? And where is God in the mess? Does anybody feel that? Recently, I came across an article about a 12th century church in England. And this church decided that in order to raise funds to redo some stuff in the building, that they were going to sell a CD of silence. Yes, they stuck a microphone in the middle of the church and captured 30 minutes of silence and sold it for profit. The CD sold out in its first pressing with orders from as far away as Ghana. If I'm honest with you, I got a little bit uppity and judgmental uh, when I read this article and I thought to myself, is this what we've come to that we're buying and selling silence? How dare they? And just as I was getting really arrogant and really judgmental, God quickly reminded me that I spend a few hundred dollars a year purchasing silence myself at a silent retreat center. Silence is hard to come by, but I think we all agree that we long for silence and we long for solitude in our lives. Silence is in its simplest form, listening prayer. Silence is engaging in a conversation with God in which we intentionally choose to abstain from speech and internal and external noise because we believe that God has something to speak to us. In listening, we stay silent when God desires us to stay silent and we speak when God moves us to speak. This is something that's important to know because sometimes when we think about silence, we just feel that it means we can't say anything. But if God moves us toward confession, if God moves us toward praise, then we respond accordingly and we speak as he leads us to speak. Now, solitude in its simplest form is fasting. Solitude is the intentional choice to abstain from the presence of people and enter into time alone with God. As we engage in solitude, distractions are revealed and God begins to show us when we rely too much on the opinions and the presence of others. The results of solitude and silence are refreshment, a deeper reliance on God, and a deepening of our understanding that our identity is rooted solely in Christ. Now, these are two spiritual habits that we see throughout Scripture in different capacities. We see them um, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, but they're not something that God demands or commands us to do. But we do know that they're things, they're habits that can enrich our lives. In the Old Testament, we see God's people remain quiet in humble submission to God. We see this in Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Job. In 1 Samuel, Hannah prays keeping her lips from moving. She prays in her heart, out of grief, she is brought to a place of silence. And in 1 Kings, we see the prophet Elijah who finds himself out of desperation, having just slain a number of prophets of Baal and now a hit's hit's been put out on his life. He, He flees to the wilderness, to solitude. And in this place of desperation and fear, God is good to meet him. 
But you see, most interesting to me is where we see silence and solitude in the Gospel of Mark, when we look at the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Jesus begins his public ministry in solitude, 40 days in the desert, praying, fasting, being tempted. In Mark 3, 7 and Mark 5, 36, we see Jesus, Jesus withdraw from crowds with his disciples to be refreshed. In Mark 6, 46, between feeding 5,000 and walking on water, we see Jesus go to a mountain and pray to be alone with God. In Mark 7, 24, we see Jesus traveling from one place to the other alone. This is really encouraging to me because what we see is that Jesus experiences solitude in the mundane, in the midst of everyday life. And the truth is that all these spiritual habits that we're discussing, they're things that are meant to be applied in the midst of the rhythms of our everyday life. In Mark 14, 35 through 41, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing what will be his final days of earthly ministry. And there we see him three times go to be with his father. It is here that he prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Stripped of all distractions for a moment, no crowds, no ministry, Jesus acknowledges the Father. And he embraces his place as God's son. He trusts the will of the Father, knowing that in a matter of moments, he will be arrested, he will be betrayed, and in a matter of hours, he will be crucified. It's here that we see that God strengthens him for the task ahead. Pastor and theologian Richard Foster provides an interesting clarifier in this discussion of solitude and silence in his book, A Celebration of Discipline. He explains, solitude is inner fulfillment. It is more a state of mind or a state of heart than it is a space. Foster goes on to explain that while silence and solitude begin in a space that is set apart, that what occurs in our hearts as God reveals where we've listened too much to the opinions of others, as God helps us to rely more deeply in him in those spaces that are set apart, that that pours over into our life within community. We begin to live in a rhythm of silence and solitude. We learn to speak when we should speak. We learn to hold our tongue when we need to hold our tongue. And if we are in a crowd or if we are alone, we possess solitude because we have found fulfillment in knowing that our identity is set firmly in Jesus Christ. The opinions of others do not shape us or change us. The presence or absence of another human being does not define us. As we live out this public solitude, there comes a new freedom to be with people and respond to their needs and their hurts because we don't have to prove ourselves. It's less about us, and it's more about how we can be available to him. 
Now, while we most certainly see, as we've just discussed, Jesus engaging in solitude and silence in these set-apart spaces, what's really interesting to me is how we see Jesus live in a place of silence and solitude, always speaking with wisdom, always understanding who he is. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is called many things. Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, possessed by Beelzebub, rabbi, one to be laughed at, one without authority, one to be denied, one to be betrayed, liar, blasphemer, criminal. All the noise in the life of Jesus. He is not boosted to arrogance, nor is he shaken by these words that are used to describe him because he knows who he is and he possesses inner fulfillment. Therefore, he does not succumb to any temptation to let others define him. He stands firmly in his identity as the son of God. And in solitude, out of this deep understanding of who he is, ministers to everyone. It doesn't matter if they're for him or if they're against him. He ministers to everyone out of a place of deep grace and out of a place of love. But that's Jesus. So what of us? Well, the truth is we have a number of barriers to engaging in the habits of silence and solitude. We have cultural barriers. We live in a culture that is absolutely inundated with noise. Bernie Krause, a conservationist and a musician who has been recording untainted natural sound for over 70 years, explained in a speech that he gave in 2001, in 1968, when I first began my odyssey, I could record for about 15 hours and capture one hour of usable sound a ratio of 15 to 1. Now it takes nearly 2,000 hours to obtain one hour of untainted natural sound. 2,000 hours to obtain one hour of untainted natural sound. Silence. And that was over 10 years ago. Now we have more communication, faster communication. We have smartphones. We have Facebook. There is more and more coming at us. So what does this mean? Well, it simply means this, that as we go to engage in the habits of solitude and silence, we have to acknowledge the fact that we will experience culture shock. It is counter to our nature as Americans to embrace silence. So as you try to be silent, as you try to be alone, you will feel uncomfortable. You will feel distracted. You may even wonder, what the heck is happening here? But that's okay. Let those feelings of discomfort come. Press through them. Ask God to show you what's at the core of all of it, and he will, in his goodness, let you know. We also have situational barriers. More and more Americans are working 50 to 60 hour work weeks. And between the stresses of family and children and activities and all the busyness of life, we have little time for silence. If we're honest, for many of us, the only silence we'll experience will be that silence at the end of the day when we turn on the TV 
to try to drown out all that noise that's inside. But we must make the choice to be silent and to be alone. Last, we also experience personal barriers to silence. I think that these barriers are the most significant because to be quite honest, it's just hard to go there. Spiritual director and author Ruth Haley Barton in her book, An Invitation to Solitude and Silence, describes this battle well. She writes, the human psyche is very good at distracting us and finding ways to keep us from being aware of those things we'd rather not be aware of. Our loneliness, our emptiness, relationships that aren't working, questions that make us uncomfortable. That's one reason why silence before God makes us uncomfortable. Because we have to face what's real and what's not real between us and God. I have to face my questions, my loneliness, and my brokenness. It's much easier for us to identify with our achievements, our skills, our personas, our titles, our roles. That's a much more comfortable arena. And there's a lot of fodder there for the ego. To feel that I can do something about this or that or the other feeds my ego in silence actually starves the ego because the normal things that the ego loves to feed on aren't there anymore. And now we're just us, a soul in God's presence. Letting God dive into our mess and show us what's there, it's not easy. It can be painful at times, but it's something that must be done because if we don't, we will find ourselves living more and more of our life based on the opinions and the expectations of others. Now for some of us, for most of us, if we decide to engage in the spiritual habits of silence and solitude, we will head into them and it will be difficult, it'll be challenging, we'll feel distracted, we'll feel like it's pointless. For most of us, we'll have to press through those barriers. For a few of you who are really organized, um, you will acknowledge that those barriers exist. You will strategically find a place where you can engage in solitude and silence, and maybe, just maybe, you will gracefully step into it. But for some of us, the silence will frighten us. This truth that's revealed that we know is just below the surface scares us. And we won't engage in these habits until we come crashing into the end of ourselves, having lived our life for the opinions, for the praise, for the expectation of others. This way, crashing into these habits, that's how I first engaged in silence and solitude. You see, now my parents are some of the most supportive people in my life, some of the most encouraging and kind and loving people in my life who encouraged me just to be me. But it wasn't always that way. See, I'm the youngest of three children, and my father is the son of an alcoholic, 
and my mother grew up experiencing just about every type of abuse imaginable. My parents served like crazy in the church. They were deacons, they were elders, they formed ministries, they drove ministries. But they didn't do that because they actually believed. They did it because they were really good at playing the part. What I knew of my dad growing up was rage and apathy. And what I knew of my mom was tremendous kindness, love, and compassion. She would often serve herself to the point of exhaustion because it really mattered what other people thought. You see, it was hard to receive my mom's love and compassion at times with all the rage and with all the apathy. If there were words to describe my relationship with my dad growing up, it would be this, Kimmer, what did you miss? My dad was a perfectionist who demanded perfection, and none of us ever stacked up. He would regularly berate and belittle my brother to the point that one time my brother walked five miles into town just to get away from my dad. My sister developed extremely low self-esteem and was sobbing all the time. My mom would get angry and she would pack up her bags and she would leave in the car and I wouldn't know if she was coming back. And I would wonder why she wasn't taking me. So I learned early on that if I could let my family shape me, if I could be who they wanted me to be, if I could make them happy, then maybe, just maybe, there would be a little bit of peace in my household. You need me to be a good student? I'm going to be a good student. You need me to be a good sister, I'm going to be a good sister. You need me to listen to you about the marital problems you're having, Mom, I'll listen to you. You need me to be your therapist, that's fine. Just tell me who you want me to be, and I'll be it. At the age of 15, it was becoming harder and harder to kind of hide the mess that was occurring in our home. My brother had left a long time before and had very little communication with us. My mom, my sister, and I had all fallen into a deep depression. And every day after school, or seemingly every day after school, I would come home and I would find my sister huddled in the corner, suicidal. I would talk her down from suicide. I would affirm her, I would encourage her, and I would stay with her for however long it took until I was certain that maybe, just maybe, she was going to make the choice to live. And then, in the quiet, when I was alone, I began cutting myself to deal with my own pain. After all, I was a strong one, right? Just tell me who you want me to be. By the time I was in seminary, I was sleeping 45 minutes a night. I was commuting 120 miles a day. I was a full-time student who had received a full scholarship to seminary that I didn't believe I was intelligent enough for. I was planning a wedding. I was doing shut-in visitations. I was advocating for the rights of the marginalized on our campus. I was serving in the campus food pantry. I was busy. It didn't matter if it was work, if it was home, or if it was school. Just tell me who you want me to be, and I'll be it. 
But you see, with all the expectations, and with all the opinions, it became harder and harder to keep it all together. I began returning home at night and just sobbing. And even though my fiance had been in my life for six years and had loved me well, had always had my back, my family told me that if I didn't pull it together, if he saw any of this emotion, that he would leave me. Didn't matter if it was a month before the wedding, he would leave me. So I began to swallow my emotions and try to hide them from him. About three weeks before I was to be married, I just had no energy left. And I woke up one morning completely exhausted. At this point, I was already pulling over on the side of the road to sleep or sleeping in parking lots just to make it to and from school. And I knew I just couldn't safely do that journey. So I emailed my professor and I said, here's the deal, I'm not gonna be there today. I'm, I understand that I'll take a lower grade that you're gonna knock down my paper, that's okay, but I just can't safely get there. I'm too tired. And he responded with about the worst response for a people-pleasing perfectionist, one whose opinions, one whose sense of self was defined by the opinions of others. He responded with, well, then you failed my class. What did that mean? What does that mean I failed your class? What does that tell me about who I am? And if I failed your class, then I could lose my scholarship to seminary. If I lose my scholarship to seminary, I can't pay to go, which means that somewhere along the line, I must have disappointed you, God. I'm trying to do my best for you, but I can't keep it together. What does this mean? Crumbling, I went to my parents to tell them his response. If I'm honest, I was looking for some form of comfort that they would say, you know, Kim, we've watched you working hard. We've watched you go to class. Just hang in there. But my dad looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Kimmer, you just flushed your whole future down the toilet. Just tell me who you want me to be, Dad, and I'll be it. That night after my parents went to bed. I called my fiance and had the usual discussion we would have every night. The wedding's coming in three weeks. Things are crazy. Thanks for being you. I love you. And unable to deal with the noise anymore, I went and I took as many painkillers as I possibly could, and I sat and waited to die. Who would I become? Where was God in the mess? My fiance saved my life that night when he called, hearing that something was just a little bit off in my voice. Because you see, I'd become a great actress. I was really good at covering up how I felt. But he called and he asked me how I was. And he asked me how I thought about things, how I felt about life. 
And in that moment, someone was strong for me and let me be weak. Over the coming days, the coming weeks, the coming months, I had no words left. I had no award-winning performances left. I couldn't be anything else but broken. And piece by piece, pain by pain, God met me. He taught me what he teaches all of us if we engage in these habits. One, he allows us to see the noise that's in our life and our need for silence. Two, he clearly showed me where I had placed my value in the opinions of others. Then he let me know that I didn't have to prove myself. That he would justify me. He loves me. And last, he taught me that I didn't have to work so hard. That if I stood in his grace, if I stood in his love, that I could be finite. I didn't have to be the one with all the answers. I didn't have to be the strong one that he would be, and I could be a mess. I could be a mess until he brought about healing in my life. Now maybe for some of you today this rings true. Parts of it do, that you're aware of the fact that you have allowed so much of your life, your job, the words of others to shape and define who you are. So maybe today you take a step toward silence and you take a step toward letting God speak to your heart by putting down your cell phone for an hour. Or maybe on the way to work, you just keep the radio off. For some of you, maybe you're ready to build a place in your house or create a room where there's a chair. And you can just go sit and be alone with God and let him tell you how much he loves you and let him show you your brokenness but wrap around you in the midst of that pain. And then maybe some of you are a little bit like me, and you just need heart surgery. And you need to go away for two or three or four days to a silent retreat center, and you need to learn to listen to God, and you need to see him move in the midst of your pain and bring about healing. It doesn't matter if it's putting down the phone or a long silent retreat. God will be good to meet you exactly where you're at. And I can promise you this. He will lovingly and graciously transform your heart. Now, together... We're going to feel that awkwardness that comes with silence. Sometimes you can start a moment of silence with a prayer, though it doesn't require words. But sometimes help. Lord, have mercy. God, help me to understand more about who you are. Jesus, save me. These can be tremendous prayers to pray as we head into silence. So whatever prayer rings true with you in your heart, go ahead and in your heart, let that be your prayer.
and then I will close us with prayer after a time of silence. Lord, we're a people who acknowledge our deep need for you. And God, we get that we are too easily at times defined by the work we do, defined by the opinions of others, defined by just about everything but you. Lord, show us, help us to understand more fully who we are in you, Help us to stand firmly in the fact that you alone are our justification, that you alone are the one who defines us, God. Lord, meet us at our point of greatest need and help us to be most fully who you've called us to be. Stir up a fire in our hearts, God, that we would be a people hungry after you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few moments, um, as the service ends, there will be some people down front who would be happy to pray with you if God has stirred something in your heart today and you'd like to receive prayer. But before we close, there are two things that I want to say. One, if you're here today and you're really struggling with the idea of suicide and you think that that's the direction you'd like to head, I want to encourage you to tell someone and tell them specifically that you are thinking about harming yourself. God's not done with you. Hold on. Reach out to someone. There will be someone there to help you. The second thing is if you're struggling with depression, if you just feel like you need to talk to somebody, connect with one of the staff, we would be more than happy to walk with you through the process of getting connected with care. But will you now bow your heads with me? I'm going to read a prayer poem for us. O God, gather us now to be with you as you are with us. Soothe our tiredness, quiet our fretfulness, curb our aimlessness, relieve our compulsiveness. Let us be easy for a moment. O Lord, release us from the fears and guilt which grip us so tightly and from the expectations and opinions which we so tightly grip, that we may be open to receiving what you have to give, to risking something genuinely new, to learning something refreshingly different. Oh God, gather us to be with you as you are with us. Church, go in peace.
Amen.